Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's so easy for us to get our eyes onto the circumstances of life and onto different uh, problems and difficulties, challenges that we face in life, to get our eyes even on a larger picture of what's happening nationally or internationally. And as we see these uh, trends in history continue, as we see new threats on the horizon and are made aware of other of other problems, we pray that we might remember that our focus is to be upon you and our happiness, our stability, our strength comes from you. You are the God who is our fortress and our strength, and you are an ever-present help in time of need. Now, Father, as we study today, may we recognize that we're here for a purpose. As believers, we have a mission, and we are to be about that mission and not to be distracted by the details of life. And as we pursue that mission, there is an ultimate destiny, and that destiny has to do with our preparation to be ready to rule and reign with you when you return. And may our focus be on that tonight as we continue to study in Hebrews chapter 10. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, in the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at this Difficult passage, difficult for many because it appears to suggest that a believer who is uh, disobedient can uh, has no recourse in terms of a sacrifice for sin. That's what it seems that verse 26 is talking about. If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. The statement, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, as I pointed out the last two weeks, is merely a reminder that all sin was paid for at the cross. The same statement we find back in verse 18, in the last part of verse 18, that there's no longer an offering from sin. There it's a very good thing. It is a reminder that Christ paid for all the sins of the world, so nothing else can be done. There's no more offering, no more sacrifice. There's nothing that needs to be done in addition. So even if there is a willful sin, which under the Mosaic law had no sacrifice, even if there is willful sin, all sins are paid for, including that willful sin. 
So there's no need to have an additional additional sacrifice. So the question may come up, if this is true, if Christ really did pay for all of my sin, and I don't have to worry about that anymore, what's to keep me from sinning with impunity? What's to keep me from just going out and uh, raising hell and doing whatever I want to all the time and just be grateful that our, my sins are paid for and I don't have to worry about my eternal destiny? Now, there's a lot of people who think that way. This was a problem in the uh, battle over the Reformation recovery of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It was Martin Luther, who was the great German reformer, who came to a clear understanding of justification by faith. He didn't come to it just in a a flash of light, which some people uh, think. In fact, even after he nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the church at Wittenberg in Germany, that was sort of the neighborhood bulletin board, and if you wish to debate something, then that's where you would put it. So this was just standard uh, procedures to uh, nail that to the church door so that everybody could see it because in those days everybody went to church and if you wanted to uh, spread the word about something throughout the community you put it on the front door of the church and that everybody would, would read it. And so that's where he put it. And it was a challenge, 95 debating points over the doctrine of indulgences uh, and other aspects of salvation doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, the Roman Catholic Church taught that if you sin, there's different kinds of sins. There's uh, mortal sins, which uh, jeopardize your salvation completely, and there's venal sins. And in order to uh, make up for these, you have to go through various uh, uh, penalties, say a certain number of Hail Marys, light a certain number of candles, put a certain, uh, put a certain amount of money uh, give a certain amount of money to the church, or if you were, and if you were concerned about your uh, your loved ones, your family after they had died, you could buy an indulgence. And so the uh, Pope needed to raise money to build St. Peter's uh, Cathedral in Rome, and so he uh, sent a man named Tetzel out to comb through all the little villages and the highways and byways to sell indulgences, which uh, meant that if you gave enough money and you bought an indulgence, then for every amount of money that you spent, then a certain number of days would be taken off of the purgatory uh, sentence for your loved ones. And so there was a little saying that for every penny in the coffer rings a soul from Purgatory Springs. And that's what uh, they did. And Luther just thought this was the most horrible thing in the world, that people were taking their, their what little money they had and their life savings, and they were using that to uh, buy the salvation of their loved ones. And all it was ultimately doing was going down to feed the corrupt, uh, the corrupt Roman Catholic Church in Rome at the time, and at this time in history, the Roman Catholic Church was not only what we would think of as theologically corrupt with a work salvation, but they were they were morally corrupt. It was not long uh, before that they had had a pope, one of the Borgias, who had several different mistresses and several uh, illegitimate children. And this, in the lowest point of the Roman Catholic Church, this was sort of uh, standard procedure for popes 
in the 10th, 11th, and, or several popes in the 10th, 11th, and 12th century. And so Luther had gone through a real crisis of faith. And as he had studied in Galatians and he had studied in Romans, he came to an understanding that our justification wasn't based on what we did, but on possession of Christ's righteousness. Now, when he first nailed those 95 theses to the door of the church at Wittenberg, he was close, but he really hadn't, you know, tightened up the focus all the way on his understanding of justification by faith. He had a a young man uh, who was allied with him, who later became his second uh, in command, so to speak, his right-hand man, in the uh, in the Reformation, by the name of Philip Melanchthon, and Melanchthon had a crisp, logical uh, mind, one of the sharpest minds, uh, theological minds in all of history, and Melanchthon really helped Luther understand that our justification was never based on anything that we did or did not do. And and you couldn't look at a person's life and say, well, that person said this or that person did that. How can they be a Christian? Because salvation or justification was based on possession of Christ's righteousness, his goodness, not our goodness or lack of it in any way, affected just by faith alone. And that was the uh, great cry of the Reformation. Uh, sola fide in the Latin. Now, Luther nailed those 95 theses on the door of the Church of Wittenberg in 1517, on October 31st, 1517. And it wasn't for another decade or so that you had a young uh, lawyer out of uh, a young French lawyer by way of Strasbourg and Geneva by the name of Jean Calvin, and we anglicized that to John Calvin. And when Calvin first began to write his Institutes, a famous uh, work that he wrote in English, it's two large volumes, the Institutes of the Christian Religion that was addressed initially to the king, King Francis, I think Francis I of, of France, and to convince him of the truth of Protestant theology. And in the first edition, I don't remember exactly how many editions the Institutes went through, but it's somewhere in the neighborhood of 30 or 40. And so he rewrote it, and initially it wasn't very long. It was 40 or 50 pages. It was very short, and as the years went by, he added to it, added to it, and built on it as his understanding of of the Scriptures developed. When Calvin started, he had a clear Lutheran view of justification. And that's clear in the early editions of Calvin's Institutes. But what happened is the the Protestant reformers ran head on into this objection that was raised by the uh, Roman Catholic theologians. Well, if salvation's free and people don't have to do anything for it and they just have to believe in uh, believe in Jesus and they're justified instantly, then what's to keep them from sinning? How do you keep how do you keep them under control? How do you keep them from living immoral, licentious lives if they're going to go to heaven because of what Jesus did and it doesn't have anything to do with their uh, morality, with their behavior, with how good they are, how bad they are. It just has to do with Jesus. And so Calvin waffled in the later editions of 
of the, his institutes as the counter-reformation, which is the Roman Catholic reaction to the Protestant Reformation began, and, and emphasized this particular question. And we see we still have this battle going on today. This may seem like ancient history because it was 500 years ago, but it's not. The same questions, the same issues come up today, and we can learn a tremendous amount by going back and reading how people at that time went through where their missteps were and what their problems were. And so that's the same problem that uh, is being addressed in this, in this chapter. It is, uh, it is not that if you commit certain sins, you can't recover, you can't, you lose your salvation or you weren't ever, or you weren't really saved to begin with. It is that if you treat the grace of God with contempt and you treat Christ with contempt, then there are consequences, not in terms of where you end up, but in terms of the um, the rewards at the judgment seat of Christ, responsibilities, positions that go with the, your with the new kingdom when we when Christ comes into His kingdom, and that is the focus of this section from 26 to 39, calling these uh, Jewish, formerly Jewish priests who are now believers, but who have come under significant persecution and attack and loss of personal property and security. And as they have come under this attack, they're questioning whether it's really worth it to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And many of them have already faded out. They just, they've just given up and they've gone back into, uh, Second Temple Judaism and they've given up on, uh, Christianity on the idea that Jesus Christ uh, was the Messiah. So that's what's happening here in 1026. If we sin willfully, in context, the willful sin is to just kiss the cross goodbye and to forget that they were a Christian, just to reject Christianity completely and go back to their uh, former state. Today, it would be the same kind of thing. Somebody who says, well, maybe I'm saved, maybe I'm not. I uh, trusted Christ when I was a kid, but I, I'm not sure I believe all of this. It doesn't really matter anymore, and I'm just going to live my life however I want to. There are consequences to that. Or the believer who thinks that he can, he's somehow covered by the grace of God, and so it really doesn't matter what I do, and, and I can uh, live this way uh, during the week, and I can go to church on Sunday, and I can just use 1 John 1, 9. That always just wipes the slate clean, and uh, I have a, basically a license to sin, and they treat it that way. Uh, there are consequences, and that's the point that is made in verse 27. There's a certain fearful expectation of judgment, not great white throne, lake of fire judgment, but the Bema seat the judgment seat of Christ, the loss of rewards, the burning up of all of your works, and there's nothing left because it all it was all wood, hay, and straw. So that's the focus of that judgment and the fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries, which as we saw uh which as we saw last time is a quote from the Old Testament that focuses us uh, it's from uh, Ezekiel chapter thirty six verse five and it focuses our attention on, on the fact that um, God was going to judge 
Israel for their disobedience, even though they didn't lose their covenant standing in terms of being the chosen people of God, they would be punished as God's chosen people for their disobedience. And then there was an, there's an illustration given in uh, verses 28 and 29. And this illustration that's set up here is based on a form of logic called an a fortiori argument. The Latin a fortiori means from the stronger. And the way this works is if something is true in one case, and then you have something similar, but usually greater than if it's true in case A, and case B is similar, then it's, or maybe even uh, to a greater degree, then it's true about that in a greater degree. And if you're confused now, let me make that a little, uh, explain that a little better. It's the idea that if a sin under the Mosaic Covenant is worthy of divine punishment, so if you break the Mosaic Covenant, if it's if that sin is worthy of divine punishment, how much more severe the punishment will be for treating the work of Christ on the cross in a contemptuous manner. See, if God instantly disciplined the Israelites in the wilderness, some he took immediately out under the sin unto death, and if that happens for an infraction of the Mosaic Covenant, which we've already studied is a lesser covenant, then when you come to this greater covenant of the, of the new covenant, which was established, that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross established it, then if you're, if you dis, if you treat that contemptuously, if you treat the blood of the covenant, that is the death of Christ in a con- contemptuous, disrespectful manner by just rejecting it, then there's going to be an even more severe punishment than what you had for infractions under the under the Mosaic law. And so when we look at verse 29, we read of how much worse punishment do you suppose? Will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? And the word that's uh, translated trampling underfoot there means to treat something with scorn or contempt of the uh, most extreme kind. This is somebody who just treats something. It's not that they're simply rejecting it, but there's a hostility toward it. There is a, uh, a disrespect toward it, an act of contempt toward it. So they are being contemptuous toward the Son of God and counting the blood of the covenant, that is the death, that that horrible, horrible death, that Jesus Christ went through on the cross when he was separated from God the Father for those three hours and God the Father poured out upon him the sins of the entire world and so much so that never before in all of that physical pain that he went through did he utter a sound like a lamb before shearers is dumb so he opened not his mouth, Isaiah said. And so he he's quiet, but the pain... Of, of the, of the sin when it hit him on the cross was so great, that's when he screamed out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he screamed that out as he went through the agony of, of being identified with our sins on the cross. And so when someone rejects him or just treats grace lightly, it is an act of contempt 
toward the death of Christ on the cross. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews says how much worse the punishment will be for somebody who treats uh, the death of Christ in such a contemptuous manner and insults the spirit of grace. It's an insult to God the Holy Spirit who is the one who regenerated us, the one who dwells us, the one who fills us, and is an insult to him. So the writer is pointing out that if there's if there's a degree of punishment for breaking the Mosaic law, it's even worse uh, subsequent to that. And then we have another verse that states the principle, for, again, from the Old Testament in verse 30, which states, For we know him who said... Now, we know him. That is, they know the character of God, know the essence of God. There is an awareness of his righteousness and his justice. And his righteousness and his justice will always work in tandem with his love because it is a righteous love. It is a just love. It is a love that is always consistent with his righteousness and always works uh, with his justice. So because we know him, we know that he is bound by his own character, his own righteousness, to bring about divine discipline, to bring about uh, justice, and so there is a quotation here from the Old Testament passage, uh, Deuteronomy uh, 32, 35, uh, and 36. 32, 35, and 36. Uh, Vengeance is mine; I will repay, says the Lord, and the Lord will judge His people. Now, the verb that is translated. Uh, vengeance here is a, a, a word that emphasizes justice. If you look at the Greek word there, I've underlined in the transliteration the root word, the the root lemma uh, is dk, d-i-k-e. That is the core word for righteousness, dikaiao, dikaiosune. These are all the words that are built off of that root, righteousness, um, justification, to be justified, all come off of that same same root. So ekdikesis means to execute justice, and it refers to the execution of right, righteousness, or justice. It's not carrying out a personal vendetta. Now, the word vengeance in English has that connotation, and a lot of people think that, that it, it has that notion of a personal vendetta. But it is the execution of justice, and therefore, the conclusion in verse 31, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. See, God's not just some abstraction out there. Unfortunately, we live in a culture today where too many people, because of the secularization of the of the world in which we've grown up and we've been influenced by, we have an abstract view of God that isn't necessarily a personal and a real view of God. And the same thing has been true in ages past because it's easy for us to to sort of put God off in a box somewhere where he's not personal, he's not really involved, he's busy somewhere else in the world with somebody else. And the writer of Hebrews reminds them of this principle that we fall into the hands, that is the power. Hands always refer uh, in terms of imagery to the power of God, that he's a living God. And this is the second time in Hebrews 
that the writer has emphasized the fact that God is a living, real God. Uh, Beware, brethren, he said in uh, Hebrews 3.12, again, a warning, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. Now, I called them brethren. Remember, what we covered in the last few weeks is that brethren in Hebrews always refers to those who have that same vertical relationship with God. It's not a term for uh, a horizontal term for others who have the same ethnic relationship, meaning Jews. It's always in relation to those who are in the family the family of God. So he's addressing them as believers and says that it is a very real possibility that some of you sitting here tonight can will wake up one morning and you're going to start making decisions based on your sin nature. You're going to let emotions start reigning in your life. And the next thing you know, you're going to have an evil heart of unbelief and you're going to be moving away from the living God of the Bible to worshiping some sort of emotional idol that you've generated out of your own soul. And this happens time and time again um, with with believers. And sometimes it's a short departure, and sometimes it's a long departure. But we all have that uh, trend, and that is a very real temptation in the culture in which we uh, in which we live. And so the emphasis is on the fact that there is a living God to whom we uh, are accountable. Now, how do we go forward? What is to get us through the really tough times? And we've had tough times. We've had tough times personally. As I look out over the congregation, I could uh, look at almost every one of you, and I could list five or six times uh, situation, circumstances in your lives where it was hard for you to get up every day. It was hard for you to get up and face the circumstances in your life, and if it weren't for the fact that you were just hanging on with dear, for dear life by your fingernails with just a uh, few promises that you just kept claiming over and over again, uh, you never would have made it through those uh, tests and through those those circumstances. And and those are pretty tough, and I know how tough some of those were for you, and you know how tough some have been for me. But what these believers went through was much tougher, I think, in many ways than most of the things that we have gone through because they were in a very tight social ethnic community as Jewish priests. And when they turned to and accepted Jesus as Messiah in this latter part of the first century, they were ostracized by many people, many of their loved ones, many of their family members. And it wasn't just a social rejection, but it was they also went through tremendous physical persecution, which is what is outlined in the next couple of verses. Yet they survived. How did they survive? They survived the same way you survived, the same way I survived. They had promises from the scriptures that they claimed, mostly Old Testament promises, but uh, because they didn't have a written uh, canon in the New Testament yet. But they clung to those promises. They clung to that doctrine that was in their soul. They clung to the truth of the cross and the truth that Jesus Christ was their Savior, but 
eventually some of them just caved in. They just didn't want to go through it anymore. They didn't have the mental fortitude and the mental stamina to stand firm against the social pressure that came from the culture around them. And, and it's very difficult to do that. And in a lot of circumstances today, we see that in with so many Christians. One of the reasons we've had the rise of the so-called church growth movement, the rise of the prosperity gospel churches, the word of faith movement, all these huge, huge charismatic churches that are just filled with with, with nonsense. They're, they're filled with a lot of uh, pseudo-spirituality and a lot of emotion and a lot of the trappings of religion and spirituality, but there's no knowledge of the Word. There's no real Bible study. They talk about it a lot, and they uh, go through certain motions and jump through certain hoops so that it looks that way, but it, it, it's not that way. But they, they succumb to the pressure of the mystical postmodern uh, worldview that we that we have today, and then there are others that also succumb to that that don't go quite as far, and we succumb to it uh, in many ways, many ways we're not aware of every single day because sometimes we just get tired of being different. We get tired of always trying to stand against an onslaught of pagan ideas, pagan opinions, pagan viewpoints. We're bombarded with policy after policy that's handed down from um, from the uh, board of directors, from the CEO, from the managers at our company. And we know that that if we could do it the way that Scripture says, we, we wouldn't do this. And sometimes we, we all have faced this. There are policies that we have to enforce that we know really run counter to Scripture. They may not be immoral, they may not be wrong, but we know that they do not come out of a sound biblical way of looking at life. We work for, uh, you can work for oil companies, you can work for, and these companies run on uh, geological uh, studies. And um, those geologists are not Christians. They're running many of their studies, and they operate off of uh, evolutionary presuppositions. Now, they can still find the oil, but nevertheless, it's part of that culture, the mentality within these corporations, corporations that have certain views on the role of men and women. They're being pressured to recognize the legitimacy of same-sex unions for the purpose of giving various uh, benefits, health benefits and retirement benefits and other things of this nature. And that's just flat wrong. And we know at the bottom of our soul that all of this is working against the health of this nation because we're um, we're eating away bit by bit on, uh, that biblical foundation of absolute truth. But we're part of that culture, and it's it's difficult to stand against that. And you know that the instant you do, you lose your job. And then what are you going to do? Well, this is the same kind of thing that they faced in uh, in the early church. So Paul, I mean, not Paul, the writer of Hebrews says, uh, but recall the former days. Remember something. This is something we find all the way through Scripture is this emphasis on memory. 
emphasis on memory, remembering certain things. And that it's not a bad idea at times when you have gone through spiritually challenging times to perhaps write down some of the things that you learn. Uh, you could put it in a journal, you could put it in just a file, you can put it in your, your notebook, whatever it is, but to remember what you thought, how hopeless and helpless and distraught things appeared, and so that when things get better and the Lord has delivered you, you can go back and remember how you went through that, how the Lord was faithful to his promises, what promises you claimed, what those spiritual lessons were. So this is what the writer of Hebrews says in the former days. You have the same emphasis on memory in the Old Testament when when the Israelites go into the land and they first cross the Jordan in that magnificent uh, uh, ceremony where they and the pageantry where the priests go forward to the River Jordan and it's flowing quickly past them. Uh, it's, uh, it's in the spring. They just had Passover. So you've got, uh, wa- the water's running high because of the snow melt off from, uh, Mount Hermon. And the, the water's not going to stop. God's not going to split the Jordan like he did the Red Sea and then have them walk across. They have to be, to demonstrate that faith and start to step into the moving water. And as their foot goes down, the water does just below it. I mean, they ha- that's a tremendous act of faith, trusting in God, and their their feet never touched the water. It hit dry ground. The God stopped the Jordan River, and they walked across on dry ground. All 12 tribes, when they got across the other side, God told them to build a rock cairn out of 12 stones, one for each of the 12 tribes, so that in future generations, when they would walk past this and their children would say, Daddy, what's that pile of rocks doing over there? Now, those of you who've been over there, you're thinking, okay, how do you distinguish that pile of rocks from all the other piles of rocks? I know what you're thinking. But they did it in a, in a special way so that it would signify something and stand out. And when the children asked, that would give the parents an opportunity to rehearse for them, the, the, all the work of God in delivering them through the wilderness, bringing them into the land and, and the conquest to pass on from one generation to the, to the next a memory, a national memory of the grace of God and the deliverance of God. And there's a great lesson that you can learn if you're a parent or a grandparent in building those kinds of benchmarks in your own family in order to perpetuate an understanding with your children and grandchildren of the way God has provided for the family and taken care of the family through through difficult times. So he says, recall the former days in which after you were illuminated. Now this word, this phrase, after you were illuminated, is a key phrase that means that they were saved. It indicates they were saved. Unbelievers are not illuminated. It, it, you have the same kind of phrase over in um, Hebrews chapter 6, indicating these are believers. In the former days in which, after you were illuminated, after you were saved, you endured a great struggle with suffering, with adversity. And for them, it was all of the adversity that came from rejection by their peers, rejection by their family, rejection by their nation because they had identified with Jesus as 
as their Messiah. And this is explained more in the next verse, verse 33. Uh, Partly while you were made a spectacle. A spectacle. Now, that word spectacle is an interesting Greek word, um, theatrizo. Guess what English word we get from there? So it's the public display of something. That's the root meaning. And the idea originally was to put something to shame, to expose it publicly for embarrassment, for reproach, and for affliction. So they were made a spectacle. They were to be uh, publicly humiliated for their identification with Jesus as the Messiah. So they were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulation. It involved physical suffering. And partly while you became companions of those who were uh, so treated. So they identified with others as they were being persecuted, and that brought them uh, into public attention. And then uh, they were uh they were ridiculed and they lost, and they lost property. They lost position. They lost money. This was taken from them. We all recognize that a very important part of freedom is property ownership. At the very core of freedom is that we have the right to own property and to dispose of property. Uh, property is the basis for all wealth. Uh, originally when, um, the the uh, Declaration of Independence was written. It, it wasn't life, liberty, and happiness. It was life, liberty, and property. And you read through the um, uh, the writings of the founding fathers. They understood that that property was the basis for uh, for growth, for developing personal wealth and stability to build for future generations. And without that uh, freedom to buy and sell, to own property, to develop property, to uh, have access to the natural resources that were on the property and to develop that for the development of wealth and all of the things that money could buy, there was no real freedom. This is one of the problems with property taxes. There's no such thing as a property tax in the Mosaic Code. Property tax treats the property as if you don't really own it. You're just sort of leasing it uh, from the government. It is not a tax that uh, it supports the accumulation of wealth from generation uh, to generation. And so their property was taken from them, a property they had a legal right to, that they had owned and that they had uh, they had a legal right to. Verse 34, for you had, uh, the writer says, for you had compassion on me in my chain, so he went through this as well, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods. Now, look at that. Joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. When the Roman soldiers or the uh, soldiers, of the Jewish temple guards came and uh, threw them out of their houses, remember they were priests, threw them out of their houses and confiscated their personal possessions. They joyfully accepted that. They weren't uh, standing at the door with a, their Roman machaira and their spear to protect their house and their hearth and home from the 
government troops coming in to take possession. They recognized that they were living in the devil's world and that if they were going to take a stand for the Lord Jesus Christ, then they had to take that stand and they were going to lose earthly possessions and earthly goods. And so they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. They lost everything they had. They lost their homes. They lost their uh, possessions. They lost what money they had. Everything was gone because they had a focus on something even greater. And that was that you can live through the most horrendous circumstances and the loss of everything because your focus is on the fact that your mission as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as an ambassador for Christ, supersedes uh, any other mission that you can think of in life, any other any other purpose. And so that's the that's their focus. They uh, joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods because they knew something. They knew that this this earth is not their home. We're transient. This property comes to here today, gone tomorrow. We may work hard for it, but ultimately we can't take it with us. It isn't our own, but there is an eternal possession in the heavens reserved for us, which is based on our spiritual life and our walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they had their focus on that eternal possession. Now, we're going to see some great illustrations of that in the next chapter as the writer of Hebrews focuses on how these Old Testament saints had that same eternal perspective. They weren't focused on what they had here. Abraham owned only one small piece of land of all the land that God promised him. He only owned the cave of Machpelah where he was buried. All he owned was his gravesite, go down to uh, Forest Lawn uh, or to Earthman's and buy yourself a uh, couple of plots at the local cemetery, and you're, you're ready to go. That's all, that's all that Abraham had was a couple of cemetery plots. So the writer of Hebrews then says, Therefore, as a result of understanding this and thinking back over where you've been in your spiritual life, why you gave all that up, and how you endured all of that. And that was much worse than what they're going through now. But when it goes on and on and on and on, and we don't get back to a point of stability, it's easy to think, well, I'll just, maybe maybe it's not true, I'll just give it up and go back. And that's exactly what they had, they had done. So in verse 35, he says, Therefore do not cast away. And the idea there in, in the verb, just don't throw it away in the garbage. Don't cast away your confidence. Literally, the word there is uh, their, um, their endurance. Do not cast away your endurance, which has great reward. Don't give up. Don't ever uh, let the circumstances so overwhelm you that you're willing to give up your eternal rewards and your eternal destiny and sacrifice that just as Esau gave up his inheritance for a bowl of, uh, of, of lentil stew. The, that illustration is going to come up as well in the next, in the next chapter. So we don't cast away your endurance, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, 
you may receive the promise. In, in Hebrews, the promise is always future. The promise has to do with that reward. It has to do with what is distributed at the judgment seat of Christ. The promise isn't the, uh, the promise of justification that's past, that's secured. It is the future fulfillment of what God has uh, uh, promised for those who are obedient to him. And then we come to verse uh, verses 37, verses 37 and 38. And in these uh, verses we have a quote from the Old Testament. Again, it's a quote dealing with believers and how believers can uh, give up how uh, by failing to endure, failing to trust in the Lord, can give up and come under uh, divine discipline. These, this quote from uh, verses 37 38 comes out of Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. And so we read them in verse uh, 37, For yet a little while, and who, he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Will come and will not tarry. And this comes from a, a combination of quotes from I, Isaiah as well as from Habakkuk. And the Isaiah quote is just for the first section, forget a little while, which is just sort of a paraphrase as the writer combines a couple of things, as we've seen him do before. And then the rest comes out of uh, Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. And uh, those are on the screen, and that reads, For the vision is yet, appoint, uh, is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. In other words, we're moving towards a direction, an irrevocable direction in God's plan. Uh, though it tarries, it may seem like it takes forever. It may not be our generation, maybe the next generation, or maybe a hundred generations from now. Uh, though it tarries, wait for it, for it will certainly come. It will not delay. And the writer changes a couple of uh, pronouns in here because he's focusing not on the destiny of Israel, but on the one who provides that destiny, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he changes it from an impersonal to a personal. He who is coming uh, will come and he will not tarry. You can count on it. And then verse uh, 4, Habakkuk 2, 4 says, Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. And so the verse 38, the writer of Hebrews says, Now the just shall live by faith, or the righteous will live by faith. He will continue to endure and persevere even in the midst of hardship, even in the midst of opposition. No matter how much he wants to give up, he's going to develop the mental, spiritual toughness in order to stick it out and go forward. And that's what's needed today is we have too many believers who've had this pablum, cotton candy uh, Christianity thrown at them. And we're coming on very difficult times in this nation, and it's going to get much worse before it gets a lot better. And there are many things that are on the horizon that are very negative, and by the grace of God we may not see them, but uh, we have to be realistic that these are very likely coming our way. The 
a tide of anti-Christianity is increasing. People are bolder now. I think we have reached a, a, a point of, uh, of no return and that we've, we've reached a point of critical mass where people are now coming out of the woodwork and saying things that they never would have said uh, 10 or 15 years ago. Uh, some of you know that uh, a couple of years ago when we went to Israel, there was a uh, documentary film crew that went along with us and filmed uh, us and, and interviews with many of us on that particular trip, and they have produced that documentary, and it has been shown at a few uh, film festivals, but it makes us look like we're anti-Semitic, that we just want, G- want all the Jews to get back in the land so that Jesus will come back, and when Jesus comes back at Armageddon, he'll kill all the Jews. Now, that's really what happens in Muslim doctrine, but that is the way that uh, we're portrayed, and I had never uh, been aware of this before, but I've certainly become aware of it since. And then this last spring when I went to the APAC uh, conference in, in uh, Washington, D.C., I became aware that this has been a tactic uh, on the political left uh, in, in the U.S. for about 10 years now in order to separate the alliance of evangelical uh, pro-Israel uh, Christian Zionists from the Jews by creating an attitude of of hostility, suspicion in in the minds of Jews. And all those, the real only reason they want to give us money and help us is to proselytize us or get us back in the land, uh, to, so their Jesus can come back. And it's just, uh, and it goes much beyond that. And in reading some of the blogs and reviews, and there aren't too many many of those online. Uh, there are some pretty strange things said about us, but one of the things that stuck out in my mind was that uh, one writer who was very hostile to us said, but there are many of you who, don't, who have this uh, crazy idea that if we just got rid of the Christians, we would have universal health care and everybody would have a livable wage and we would not have any problems anymore. And that really hit me, that there are... Buku people in this country who think that the only reason we don't have universal health care and the only reason that we don't have a successful communist state is because of evangelical Christians. We are being blamed more and more for everything. People are saying this in the public square in ways that they never would have said it before. And this is just the beginning. So we have to be prepared not to be distracted by these issues. It's important to be involved in, the, in politics. That's part of our uh, responsibility as citizens of this country. And Scripture says we're to do all things to the glory of God, and that's part of the all things. But that's not our primary mission. Our primary mission is that we are to be proclaiming the gospel and that we are to be uh, functioning as salt and light in the nation. That also involves the uh, political dimension. But we are to live by faith. And if we don't do it the right way, in a way that honors God, then, and we fail, we bug out, we bail out, we don't stick with it, then the Scripture says, uh, quoting the Old Testament, my soul has no pleasure in him. There's divine discipline. God is not going to uh, be pleased with us if we are disobedient to him or if we don't hang in there. 
But the writer of Hebrews doesn't end on a negative note. He ends on a positive note. He says, but we're not of those who draw back to perdition. We're not of those who bail out and can't stick with it. Uh, we are of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Now, this isn't justification salvation. This is spiritual life growth salvation. This is the deliverance of our soul over and in the midst of these hostile circumstances of oppression and persecution and the loss of property. And so I always thought this was a great verse to summarize the problem-solving devices, that we have what it takes in those problem-solving devices to face the challenges of life, and that is what saves the soul, not in the sense of justification salvation, but in the sense of deliverance from the, uh, uh, from the power of the sin nature so that we can experience the joy, the happiness that God has for us no matter what happens in the world around us. Our mental attitude, our stability, our security is not threatened because we know that God is still on the, on the throne even if we go to a martyr's death as uh, many of the writers of Scripture did, many of the disciples did, they still have, uh, have that joy, like many of the martyrs in the Reformation who were tied to a stake, especially during the reign of Mary Tudor. Uh, there were over 300 uh, Protestants who were burned at the stake in England. Many of them, uh, as the flames began to lick uh, and burn their legs, they would sing hymns and to the glory of God, keeping the focus on the Lord Jesus Christ and on the trust in God and his provision. I wonder how many of us, if we were taken out today and tied to a stake and burned, could sing through a single hymn. And they often were, they didn't know how to build good fires then, and often they were in pain for several hours before they died, and they would sing hymn after hymn. It kept their mind focused on the Lord Jesus Christ, and they could recite Scripture. And that is what gets us through even something like that. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to be reminded of how your grace has sustained us, in the past, how it has provided for us in the past, and how it will continue to provide for us and protect us and to uh, enable us to face whatever uh, challenges and heartaches and persecution that we might have in our future. But today is the day to prepare for that, and we prepare for that by the study of your word. We prepare by that for by the practice of your word, the faithful, consistent, perfect practice, perfect application of your word so that we're prepared to uh, utilize it when the really difficult times uh, come into our lives. Father, we're thankful that we have such a great hope. We have such a great future because of who you are and what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. And so, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.